Father in heaven, we come before you in Jesus' name. And we know that all authority and all power and all wisdom and all might belong to you. As we sang today of your majesty, we want to acknowledge that we as your people are humbly coming before you in Jesus' name. We are a people who need you. We need to feed on your word. We need, Lord, your spirit to illuminate our minds and hearts so that we can allow your word to penetrate deeply, deeply into our souls. Because as you said, Lord Jesus, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So speak to us your words of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm pretty sure that all of us have experienced the tendency of people going to the extremes. It happens when there are extreme decisions or extreme positions in life, and they normally get noticed. They draw our attention, and they receive, if you will, the greatest reaction by people who either oppose or support those excessive views. We've been able to see this in this COVID period of time, have we not? It is the extreme views that make the headline news, that promote fiery debate and cause schisms. These kinds of extremes are also evident in our daily life. As people are engaging in, well, like weight loss and exercise programs, or they're adopting, uh, adopting these new financial or business strategies, or they're striving for the ideals, if you will, of personal perfection, all by human strategy, by investments, and by personal sacrifice. They are extremes, though, because they are being marketed before our eyes by professionals in academia, in medicine, in science, by athletes, by entrepreneurs, by exercise gurus who specialize in one particular field and whose main purpose is to promote and to promise each one of us, the same extreme levels of success and or accomplishment. And even we today as believers who have received the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life by God's amazing and wonderful grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, even we can still fall into extremes. 
the church throughout its history has been guilty of falling into these sort of extremes. From the extreme pursuits, if you will, of God and of his kingdom and of holiness through such means as the Crusades or the Holy Inquisitions that are part of Christian history. Or we can also go to the extreme of being misguided by the fact that we indeed get so absorbed by this world that we sacrifice not only our devotion but our service so that we can try to meet all the needs of people in this world through the social gospel, through the name it and claim it movement, through theological liberalism, and through social and moral reconstruction. All of these become self-serving and self-gratifying and are a front to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both extremes, as I've mentioned, have sinful outcomes. And they came, if you will, and are coming at great cost to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the truth of the Bible, and to the integrity and reputation of his church. In James chapter 4, verses 13, 4, 13 through 5, 6, James is dealing with two extremes that were present among the believers in his day, and I'd like to say they are present in us today. The first is found in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4. It is the sin of presumption. And the second one is found in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, I call it the sin of consumption. Both, in both cases, these extremes lead to sinful practices, and they are an affront to the sovereignty of God. In both cases, the offenders exhibit an arrogant, self-righteous, attitude of heart that ignores God's control and discounts that God is not only the ruler, but the owner of everything, including every person. Well, how does this sin of presumption flesh out in these scriptures? Well, let's look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. What's going on here? What is James warning us of? He's warning us not to put confidence in our, own, in our own wisdom and our own human ability. Rather, we should be putting our confidence in God. 
to function in life by worldly wisdom and the abilities that we can muster actually denies God's rightful place in our life. And it denies God's truth for our lives. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because when it really matters, we need to know where this worldly wisdom and where this human uh, uh, ability really lands people. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is actually explaining how the wisdom of God is contrary to the wisdom of the world. And he brings it in the context of the gospel, beginning at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The desired, if you will, ends of people who are relying on worldly wisdom and human ability will lead them to a place of never knowing God. This course of false confidence in human ability and autonomy, if you will, leads to this arrogance of what I call the sin of presumption. It's a mindset that aligns with a famous poetic quote that you probably know. It's actually nestled in the context of a person who is relying on human strength and bravery to overcome his own life's adversity. The title of the poem is Invictus. And the last quote of that particular poem is this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Our Old Testament passage is a great example of someone who thought that way. It was Nebuchadnezzar. He was even given a vision that was interpreted by the prophet Daniel of what was going to happen to him if he continued to exalt himself and not exalt the Most High God. And in verse 25, we read this. These things are going to happen to you. You'll be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with beasts. You'll eat grass like cattle. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass before you until, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind 
and bestows it on whomever he wishes. You see, James is reproving this confident assertion that man's future can be based on his own human ability, his own uh, reason to be able to plan and plot and, and to bring resources together and use his own efforts alone. Such a mindset of self-reliance and self-governing dethrones God and enthrones self. Beloved, we are not the master of our fate, nor are we the captain of our souls. Our master in life and the captain of salvation of our souls is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd. He is the guardian of our souls. And just as King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn through that seven periods of time, those years that he was out there living like a beast, it says there in verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand. So, in light of this reproof, James gives us some sound instruction about how we're supposed to live life in verses 15 through 17. Let's read it together. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Do you realize the, the depth and the, and the core and the foundation that he is presenting here? If the Lord wills, we will also live and do this or that. And then he says this, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. As Proverbs chapter 27 verse 1 says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Or as Jesus taught in the gospel according to Luke, it's written in chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. 
the core teaching of this particular parable is this, that we are not in control. It tells of a rich man, and in the reasoning of his own mind after uh, acquiring a great amount of wealth in the area of grain and sustenance, he says to himself, I'm going to tear down these old barns, and I'm going to big, uh, bigger barns. I'm going to construct bigger barns to hold all of my grain and all of my goods. In fact, we read it in verses 18 through 21. He said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. James says it this way, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Such arrogance, such self-aggrandizement of, of who we are and what we do is sin. And what we need to do is confess it, repent of our boasting, and humbly pray, even as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 39 and verses 4 through 6, where he said, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hands' breaths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man is at best a mere breath. <clears throat> well, let me clarify one thing with a couple questions before we go on to the next extreme. Let me ask you, is it wrong to have wealth? Is it wrong to have a bank account or a savings account or financial securities for the future? Is it wrong to save for retirement or to acquire a life insurance policy so that if you prematurely die, you have something for your wife and children? Well, the answer, I believe, to that is no. It's not wrong. What is wrong is that when we do all those things, and we do not commit them to God first. Because God has called us to be stewards of all things. And this, in, this uh, stewardship that he has called us to includes us investing in the kingdom of God, in the proclamation of the gospel. We are called to be good stewards of the resources that God gives to us. And just as Jesus was 
telling the story about the unrighteous steward, we need to realize that we are stewards as well. One of the things that he praised the unrighteous steward in that story, the master did, was the fact of the way he used the unrighteous mammon that was being collected by his master. And what he decided was to indeed provide a way so that he would not be left with nothing. So that when he was removed from management, he might receive, be received by those into their eternal dwelling. The admonition here is this. If we're not faithful with the little things, God will not make us faithful in much. If we're not using the unrighteous things that are very little things, how can we have the true riches that God wants to give to us? If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? You cannot serve God and mammon. And this ties in directly with this other extreme, the sin of consumption. You see, James is sharply rebuking believers who are rich. And it wasn't wrong that they were rich, but they were hoarding their wealth. And they were misusing their wealth and their positions of power to oppress others. In fact, they were even employed by them. They were not paying their wages that they earned. This is a great picture of the sin of consumption. James also writes for those who are being hurt by this sin. And he wants to remind the poor and those who are impressed, who are suffering wrongfully by such as those who are committing this sin, that there will be a vindication, that God will bring a just judgment against them. In fact, he tells those who are rich, who are misusing their riches and their power, he says to them, you who are wrongfully accruing, if you will, riches, that your riches will become worthless and they will become the very witness against you. They will be a witness to condemn you. Verses, in verse 1, he says to them, Weep and howl, for your miseries are coming on you. And then he says in verses 2 and 3, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure." It was our Lord Jesus during the time of his Sermon on the Mount that he said this to us. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. The third thing that he has to say to them is found here in verses 4 and 5. He says that because they have not paid their laborers who mowed their field and harvested their fields, that indeed, because they've withheld us, the cries are coming out from those people. And though they have ignored it, God has heard it. He has heard their outcry. It has reached his ears, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth. Why? Because the rich have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. They don't realize. They don't realize that they have fattened themselves, fattened their hearts for the day of slaughter. But even worse than that, he brings out the fact that these rich exert their powerful influences to overpower the poor, the helpless, the powerless. And they even use judicial means to have their ends accomplished to the point that they condemn them, to the point that they're even willing to put them to death to secure their riches. Verse 6 says, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. The reason why this relates so well to us today is because there are similar cases in the courts today whereby the rich and the powerful use their status and their influence and their networks to overpower those who are powerless, who have, by the way, been unjustly mistreated. It's happening all the time. As Paul warns us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Joshua ben Sirah, in the second century, as he was quoting about this verse in verse 6, said this, The bread of the needy is the life of the poor. Whoever deprives them of it is a man of blood. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed his blood. So how are we as believers 
to resolve these two sinful extremes that are present within the church today as they were back then. The sin of presumption, the sin of consumption. Well, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, have we been ensnared by one or both of these forms of sin and not realized it? Let me suggest to you and to me that the thing that we need to do right now, the main thing, is to repent. We need to repent and ask God to forgive us for what we've done. We need to repent of what? We need to repent of the sin of enthroning ourselves and dethroning God, who is our sovereign creator and ruler over all, and recognize that he is that to us in our lives, and to return the control back to God. He must be in charge. We must Submit to God in all areas of our lives and in all the plans of our lives. As Proverbs 16.9 reminds us, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Or as Psalm 37.5 says, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. Secondly, In light of the sin of consumption, we, if we have been hoarding and collecting and not committing those resources to God, that we have seized them by selfish ownership, refusing, if you will, at the same time of our stewardship before God, that they are His resources, that we are owned, bought with a price, the blood of Christ. And therefore, we need to humbly submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and once again become good stewards of the blessings of God. As Paul exhorts us in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Finally, for these steps to even begin to take place in our lives, we of repentance and and then submission to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to remember that first of all, that we are sinners. We need to admit that we are sinners and that to go in these courses is to fall under the judgment of God. And we must believe with all of our heart that our God and Father knows what's best for us. In fact, he sent his own son, the eternal son of God, into this world who was conceived miraculously and born a man without sin and lived that sinless life so that he might indeed become the sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice for our sins. For he who knew no sin 
became sin for us so that we might receive the righteousness of God in Him. That He willingly gave His life as an atoning sacrifice being crucified on a cross after dying and paying the penalty for our sins in his body on that tree. That he rose victoriously bodily from that grave three days later to never die again and to offer to us as Savior and Lord the free gift of eternal life if we'll just put our faith and trust in him. That means if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never confessed him as Savior and Lord of your life, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you happen to be here today and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, as this gospel speaks its truth to you, let me encourage you to do so today. Yes. Amen.